Hello, Bonsai friends. This is Evan Pardue of Underhill Bonsai. Welcome to episode 30 of Little Things for Bonsai People podcast. And this time I am joined by my co- my co-host, uh, Mike Lane of Kesune Bonsai. How's it going, man? Good. How you doing, guys? Very, very well. I hope everyone else is doing up doing well out there as well. Uh, we're excited to talk today about a few subjects. We decided to do a couple of things and uh, break it into two parts. So we have a, we had a sea hibiscus question, and then we have a little bit of display to talk about. We want to talk about displaying trees. But before we get to that, uh, I would like to thank all of our patrons that's, uh, that sponsor our podcast. Without you guys, we wouldn't be able to do this. Uh, so thank you guys so much for supporting the show. Starting off our list with uh, Tori Solis, Warehouse Rat, Boyd Snellgrove, Ricky Ruins, Joshua Bentley, Snappy Chappers, Ryan Giordano, Joel Jenkins, Justin Knight, Backyard Bonsai Australia, The Ladies at the Flower Market, Taylor Peacock, Chase Pertweet, Vicky Auth, and a new $1 uh, bonsai bud at yeah, the, our first tier. Uh, Jason B, thanks for joining our list of patrons. Uh, thank you for supporting the show so much. Uh, and then just mention Matt really quick, our editor. You can go over to mattodonnell.com and go check out Matt's site. Uh, he's our editor. He makes us sound smart, clean, smooth, makes us sound cool. Uh, if it wasn't for Matt, the show wouldn't be possible. Thank you so much, Matt. Uh, go over to mattodonnell.com. You can, you can fill out his information uh, his contact form to get more information on editing, having your po- podcast uh, edited or worked on by him, or maybe uh, do some music with him as well, because he's a bass player based out of Nashville, Tennessee. And you can over check him. You can check him out over on Instagram as well. So, Mike, we had a listener bring up that they wanted to talk about sea hibiscus a little bit, and I can't think of anybody else in the states right now that would know that species as well as you do. So what do you think is a good just start? I know there's a lot to be said, but where where's what's a good like summary and we'll break it down into parts of CI biscuits. Well, I think uh, one of the things that I've talked about before about tropicals is like my my tropical dogma or like explaining to people what I see as tropical bonsai culture. And that being very similar to Japanese bonsai in that we just had Sergio on. We were talking about Japanese maple and that being the queen of of bonsai and the black pine being king of bonsai. Well, most of us are familiar with Japanese species that are used all over the globe pretty much unanimously. So anybody who's doing bonsai will typically have one of those species. And tropical bonsai is very much the same, where if I go to any tropical country, I'm going to find kind of a hierarchy of trees that I'll always see. And I'll always see premna, I'll always see ficus, I'll usually see water jasmine, and I will definitely always see sea hibiscus. So um, sea hibiscus is has, is like a cornerstone of tropical bonsai, in my opinion. Um, maybe not in the United States, but everywhere else. Uh, and it it is probably like the number one tree used for displaying ramification in my opinion for tropical bonsai so it's uh i really enjoy working with it it's um it's one of the trees that has a it was with me at the beginning it was a great beginner tree and it's also one that has allowed me to really aspire to more advanced techniques that 
uh, I wasn't able to get into before. And, uh, you know, things like premnas and neas with small leaves, a lot more difficult to apply advanced techniques on, in my opinion. So it's a really, really great tree for beginners and advanced alike. So what is its regular growth habit and where does it come from? Um, well, so I'm not exactly sure like what if there's a specific country that they're endemic to. I know that they're from the, the Indo-Pacific regions. So you'll find them, you know, Australia, Taiwan, Indo, Indonesia, uh, Malaysia, places like that. But they're also introduced and somewhat native now to Florida. So there's uh, established, there's a Florida variant that grows in the wild here and um, and in uh, Hawaii as well. So where it's known as the um, Meho, mm. so Meho tree. Yeah. And yeah. Um, yeah, so it's uh, the growth habit is usually extremely strong. I'd say probably the strongest root growth that I've seen on a plant. Uh, as far as like they'll fill a pot faster than anything else that I've seen. And their development is also probably the fastest of any plant I've worked with. So for those reasons, it's really been uh, an essential tool to learn on because I can churn out trees, you know, batches of them at a time and get good results within a year. Mm -hmm. And I was uh, thinking about the way they grow. Because if you actually look up, and I've, I've done this before, you go look up online and just look up sea hibiscus and you kind of just kind of see what the tree looks like, how they grow in their, when they're just in the ground and they're just let wild, like they just grow what, however, um, they will grow into, I think they get somewhere around 20, 30 feet tall. That's correct. Yeah. They get huge. And then they're, and their trunks get really, really wide. And barky, very barky, and they get a lot of, um, they get huge leaves. So that's the other thing that most people are off put by sea hibiscus because of the large leaves. And, you know, they'll see pictures of a nice finished sea hibiscus and they'll buy one and they'll try and apply like hedge pruning or some other technique to it and get limited results. And then they'll give up on the species. Um, mm. So that growth habit, what I've noticed with sea hibiscus is I had to kind of relearn the way I grow things to finally get the results I wanted. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's hard to look at a sea hibiscus, especially in nature or or just like photos of them existing in nature um, versus what we see in bonsai because of and th this is probably just my um, experience and also what I've seen in, in of, of sea hibiscus is when you see a great sea hibiscus, there's lots of movement, lots of character, lots of texture to the trunk, depending on the methods of how you bent the trunk or how it was grown or how it was allowed to just, uh, you know, accumulate a lot of girth before you start it really going in and getting the branches out. I mean, there's also like, a, um, isn't, there's a cork bark variety of it of as well, correct? Yeah, there's a mm. uh, there's a lot of different varieties. I mean, they they will all get bark. Uh, mm -hmm. They will all develop a bark of some kind. Uh, but there are varieties that are barkier uh, than others. And yeah. so, yeah. But that's uh, as Sergio was pointing out, and I thought was a great point. Is you know discussing the various ways that the various varieties of Japanese maples. So you have all these different types of Japanese maples and he was discussing how differently he treats them. Mm 
So mm. some can be wired, some can't, some have to be grown this way, some have to be grown that way. And they were such distinct differences that he favored working with one over the other. And that's the same for sea hibiscus. There's varieties that will make your life a hell of a lot easier. And mm -hmm. there are varieties that will be a lot harder to do the same work towards. So um, what I've noticed is like the cork bark varieties that I've worked with tend to have inferior ramification qualities. So the, the type of branching I get isn't as dense or the budback's not as consistent as some of the like newer varieties that are coming in from Taiwan. Yeah. And uh, kind of call back to where I was going uh, with looking at pictures of them in nature versus uh, when you look at a, a sea hibiscus, you don't really get any inspiration from the way they grow naturally. So mm -mm. they have to be trained and, and pruned and cut in a very particular way. And even if you were to grow a sea hibiscus from a cutting, uh, you can't just stick it and then let it grow and just expect to be able to just start getting your the results that you're looking for in, in a valuable piece of bone size, pre-bone size stock. So Mike, you kind of Kind of give us a step-by-step. -step. So I, I know one of the easiest way, like you mentioned earlier, is you can take cuttings with them. You can get like gangbusters. You get a bunch of cuttings going. Mm -hmm. So bring us through like basically a year's trial of developing a sea hibiscus show hen in the way that you kind of do it. Okay. Let me preface that first with a little kind of a story, I guess, if you will, mm -hmm. um, because this will kind of give context to what I'm talking about. And so when I first started working on sea hibiscus, it was largely due to the book uh, and pictures by Min Swan Lo of his work with sea hibiscus. And this was probably in about 2009 was when I was introduced to it. Um, and so right about then, about 2009, 2010, I started pursuing trees that looked like his with sea hibiscus. And I bought a sea hibiscus and I lo looked in his book and I noticed that it said in six years development, uh, from the time he started to the time he finished the tree, it looked really, really nice. And so I said, okay, in six years, my tree will look like that. Mm. And three years didn't look anything ne near that. Four years went by, didn't look anything near that. Well, I hit the six year mark and it didn't look anything like that. So uh, I tried again. I was like, maybe it's a different variety. Tried with another variety, still same results. So it wasn't until I kind of started reading and really applying the concepts of clip and grow or semi clip and grow hmm. basically meaning where I'm running out large portions of the branch. So now I'll get to what I do in a year. So I basically grow sea hibiscus in two different ways. I grow them either wired or tapered. And so the wired ones are quicker and I can wire my interest in and they grow super, super fast. And I just basically bank on movement for my interest. And then the ones I like better that I think show a higher level of work are the tapered ones, which I basically will grow them until they get to a certain thickness. And then I will cut them back really, really hard, like to a couple inches above the soil. And I will start building branch by branch, making numerous cuts. Like I'll let them grow out. Then I'll, I'll divide it to two branches, let those grow out, divide to four branches, let those grow out. And all the while I'm doing this, I'm building character on the trunk. So each time I heal a wound and I make a wound, as soon as I heal it, it adds a lot of character to the trunk. The character that I could never achieve with six years of growing, I was able to achieve easily in one year 
by just applying a different set of techniques and making wounds and healing them. And because of the accelerated rate at which I'm growing these and the method that I'm growing them, it's it was happening at a, at a very fast rate, very rapid rate. And so then it started making sense that, wow, six years of doing this work right here will result in those results. And now I have finally started to see those results coming into my own trees. Uh, you know, I probably started making that change about five or six years ago. And now I see a vast difference in how they look, how the, the leaves reduce. They, they're finally turning into the material I always thought they could be. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And if you go over to, uh, to Mike's Instagram over to Kitsune Bonsai, uh, by Mike Lane, you can see some of the progressions. I think you have some of them a little bit further back. Um, cause yeah. you, you haven't really done a lot of starters on uh CI Biscus. I haven't seen recently. I know you're doing them all the time, but, uh, you have the more developed versions of them on your Instagram now and they're amazing little trees. Uh, but yeah, like you said, you, you start off with a really hard bend or I've seen you also do like some tight coiling mm -hmm. on the, yep. on the cuttings. Yep. And then you'll grow that out for a little while. And then when it gets to a point whenever, and this is one of the things that I really like on uh, some show is you'll get the coiling or the tight bends and then they'll, they'll, they'll grow into the point where they'll touch. Yes. And that's, that's kind of like that little bit of grotesqueness to the, to the sea hibiscus that you, that I've heard you actually say in the past, that you actually like to see. I do like it. Yeah. Um, you know, for those, for the listeners that are really interested in kind of seeing and exploring new designs, look up the, the sea hibiscus of Min Swan Lo, and you'll find arguably the most controversial tree in that I've ever looked at, you know, as far as, uh, flaws, things like that. And it will make you kind of explore what makes something aesthetically attractive because the tree you'll see has reverse taper, has branches in the wrong places. It looks grotesque, looks almost like a creature in a lot of ways. Um, but I've never found somebody in all the time I've given this kind of same lecture about sea hibiscus and I've shown the picture of that tree. I've never found anybody that said they didn't want it in their garden. Mm. Not, not one person. So it, it has a, a beauty to it and there is a beauty to the some of the grotesqueness you know there can be if it's framed appropriately so whenever i see a lot of this the ci the hibiscus that you're talking about they're normally defoliated so you can mm -hmm. really appreciate what's going on as far as the the refinement of those trees yeah think of defoliation especially for tropical bonsai as saying i have nothing to hide so it's a way of, and it's, it's to show off. It's a way of showing like the sea hibiscus would look great with leaves on it. Like you can make great pads out of it, mm -hmm. but they're typically shown with no brand, with no leaves on them to show, Hey, look at this structure. I didn't just hedge prune this. I didn't just, you know, uh, shape it like a topiary into this. I spent the time building the structure. And so it's, it's a way you have to be very brave to show a tree defoliated or in winter silhouette, because everything will be on display, hmm. you know, all the warts, bumps and everything, and all your cuts will be on display, everything. So when you defoliate like that, it's basically like saying, ah, I got nothing to hide. And you're hmm. really taking a big, big, uh, step in it's a big push of bravado. Yeah. You know, so. Yeah. That's, uh, with tropicals. <laughs> Uh, I've seen 
at like a big show one time this this uh, artist showed a couple of buttonwoods and he defoliated them for that exact reason because mm-hmm. you can do the same thing um and i think like you said that's really cool and i, I and i'm a deciduous person like i really love deciduous trees i'm gonna be honest that's the, that's kind of like my cornerstone of bonsai and knowing that when i can work with my tropicals like my buttonwoods and my sea hibiscus defoliating them it brings more pleasure to me to know that I can appreciate their branch structure. And if I wanted to show them, then I that I have that option as well. And I think that's really cool. It makes the sea hibiscus even more versatile uh, than one would assume. And uh, it, go ahead. It does. And that's a, that's a big part of, uh, of tropical bonsai culture in general is, um, I hate to say this, is, is defoliating and showing that structure is important, you know, for show especially if you've worked really, really hard on that structure and it's a tree where otherwise all you'll see is like a dense kind of crown um, where all the details are lost. What I caution listeners on is defoliating is one of the number one, like strongest ways to weaken a tree. So it's full defoliation. I only choose to do that for my own, um, needs my own want of aesthetics so i only do it on healthy trees i only do it on strong trees and if i'm trying to build branches i very systematically use like a partial defoliation uh i could see that because a lot of tropical bonsai and a lot of tropical stock is very energy positive meaning that they're just they're just about growing non-stop all year long as long as they got the, the right environments uh, and I mean, if you greenhouse your trees, they will grow to a certain extent and you want to make sure they're nice and strong then. But in some regions like where you're at, uh, they will just keep going, especially yeah. if you greenhouse them. Um, so, and that, that, I think that's one thing that we need to bring up, um, before we get too far, like into techniques and stuff and start talking about some more complicated things with them is, uh, is their range. They're what you would say they're more of a tender tropical or more of a little bit of a stronger tropical. I'd say they're a stronger tropical. They don't like a freeze, but as far as like, like if you brought it indoors and surviving near a window through winter until you got through till, uh, spring, I mean, they're a very tough tree in that regards. They're very tough tree. If you were to invest in lighting, you know, Mm -hmm. I'm sure you could do some amazing things with them under artificial lights. Um, it's never going to be as good as the sun, in my opinion. You know, it'll never be as easy. And, um, you know, I still recommend people up north growing them. But, you know, take them outside, get as much done as you can during the grow season. And if you can, then kind of mitigate the off season with like a grow light, something like that. Because you're going to build very, very dense ramification, or rather you have the ability to build very, very dense ramification and the problem with that is any kind of the second you start stopping your maintenance routine on making sure every bud is balanced with energy is the second you start losing ramification. So it's like a hamster wheel. Like the longer you can be on it and on your game and not like having any setbacks, the more ramification you'll accumulate. Mm. If you're not paying attention and you're just kind of hedge pruning the tree or you're just kind of cutting it willy nilly. Well, then weak stuff will start to die, strong stuff will stay strong, and you'll start losing as you gain. 
So you won't make any ground, if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so we can keep them in. They're not an indoor bonsai by any means. They're going to no. prefer the hottest part of the year. But if if required, if required, good grow lights and keeping them super moist uh, because they love humidity, just like any other tropical. They like uh, humidity. Yeah. The other thing is is repotting super frequently. Um, they, they cannot sit in like organic soil in a pot for more than a year or two. They have to be either up potted or repotted or something because they basically get root locked. They get so dense with roots that the water won't pass through evenly and, uh, they just start shutting down. So I've noticed like, sometimes I can't keep up. I've had to, I've thrown out several batches of sea hibiscus because, they started declining to a point where I didn't want to bother salvaging them. I didn't, you know, there weren't great trunks and I didn't get them moved up in time or I didn't get them repotted in time. And so something about you really got to stay on top of their roots, uh, making sure that water's passing through evenly, or you can start running into issues with them, especially in the development phase. Issues as far as, uh, will they drop branches if they get root locked or will yeah, they... Yeah, they'll get really, really weak. They'll start looking like they're staying too wet and it'll be really, really hard to start turning them around uh, unless you do really get in there and do like a full repot, get them over to like a bonsai soil or unless you up pot them, give them new soil to grow into. So once you do that, they'll start coming alive again and start pushing new growth but if they stay root locked like that, they'll just start to like stay too wet. They'll start showing signs of that. They'll stall out and not grow. And then they'll eventually die. Um, and so how often if you if you need it to, because you you don't want to have to keep going up and up and up and up in pot size. Eventually you're gonna cut back really hard. So what is the appropriate right. amount to cut off of them? I like usually to get the fastest results, I usually keep up potting. Like I will up pot several times in one year to keep up with the roots. So I will up pot, I'll go from a four inch. And like if this is a, a, a cutting, I go four inch. And then two, three months later, I go up to a six inch or a one gallon. I might go all the way into a one gallon. And then three, four months later, I might go into a five gallon. And then that's usually where I'll stop. A five gallon is as big as I'll go. And a five gallon, if you put a, a sea hibiscus in a five gallon in Florida, in one year's time, you'll have at least a one and a quarter inch trunk. And mm -hmm. so you'll grow that in a year from nothing. And so if you wired that little cutting before you did this, well, now you've just got this really cool moving trunk line that's an inch and a quarter thick that you put one year into and like $5 a soil. Yeah. So... <laughs> So, you know, it's, it's really, really fast if you keep up with it. Um, if you don't keep up with it, then like, that's what I'm saying. I don't, if I don't have enough soil or if I'm not up potting them frequently enough, then they start to languish. And then I lose my desire to want to work with them. I'm working on other stuff that looks better and mm. they start to decline. So they can be my point, I guess the takeaway is they can be so aggressive and so fast that growing that it can be hard to keep up if you have too many. Yeah. So <laughs> then the question comes, uh, how many is too many? <laughs> there is no, not too many. No. <laughs> yeah. um, I'd say yeah, that's going to differ based on everybody's lifestyle. You know, if yeah. I was retired 
and I could just sit around and monitor the garden, then I would increase the number that I could keep up with. But right now, realistically, a batch that I could probably work with is a batch of like 15. And that's a lot. And I will probably like much, but it is. (laughs) I will probably when you think about the up potting process, like I've got to keep up with up potting 15 of those little trees. Mm -hmm. And then you think, where am I going to put 15 pots that are five gallons that are gradually going to get bigger? They're going to go from that four inch to the up to up. And then you have that space just ready to go. Yeah, exactly. And then think of the actual area that the foliage takes up. So now it's a big space issue. So it's. A lot of things can overwhelm you really, really quick if you're growing too many. So for me, that's my max. Like 15 a a year is a lot. And I'll probably get about five of those to five gallons. You know, the rest will probably end up in one gallons. And some of those, unfortunately, will end up becoming nothing. They'll just be duds. And Mm -hmm. so I will pick the best and take care of those ones the best. And those will be the ones that typically end up on the bench a year or two later forward refinement yeah it's kind of like how i think about if i'm gonna go collect bald cypress stock i kind of think about them the same way that you're talking about with ci hibiscus especially if you're going for chop regrow the top you know grow out the primary branches that stuff can be achieved within a year's time similarly and i'm thinking i'm thinking about the amount of trees like that i would take on comfortably so that I could get optimal design work in and 15 for me running the nursery and also maintaining my personal collection of developed trees. And then thinking about adding on trees that I'm going to grow from, from cuttings like a sea hibiscus that, yeah, that's, that's something I have to mentally sit there and look at. And, you know, that's why I'm growing uh I'm, I'm growing Japanese black pine from seed. Yeah. And so they're a little bit slower, whereas mm-hmm. the CI hibiscus, I've been considering on doing a batch like you're talking about. And I think it would be a, an interesting challenge for for our listeners. If you can get your hands on a CI hibiscus, uh, take, you know, and the, we'll talk about striking cuttings in just a second, but try to uh, strike you a handful of cuttings and then do something with each one of those cuttings and then work within the methods that Mike just said and see what you guys can get in a year's time. And I think that would be really awesome. I would love to see tree like pictures of those trees as they develop. But uh, I remember talking to you about taking cuttings for sea hibiscus. And uh, I remember you, we called it, we basically were saying it's doing it the dumb way, just stick them all in one pot and then, and then just kind of filter through the better cuttings with the better roots, transfer them over. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Basically. So, I, I will take a four inch pot as a good example. If I cut off, you know, 20 cuttings, let's say I have 20 of these little cuttings, I could realistically fit all 20 of those in a four inch pot of organic soil. And that's what I want to do. I don't want to stick one cutting in a four inch pot. If we keep them too wet, the cutting won't strike. And uh, so we want to like keep a bunch of them. Think like if you have 20 of them in one little pot, then it will use the water equally. So all 20 of those cuttings will be pulling from the water and they're less likely to stay wet. Um, So basically my process is I jam like 20 of them into a four inch pot, water it fully, completely, and put it in the shade. And then I, I let it dry down a little bit before watering again. So I don't water every single day. 
and this is really important is you got to start allowing it to dry down a little bit because you got to trick the that root system into going into and colonizing the soil if you're watering it all the time if i have a little cutting and it's it pushes one little nub of a root and i'm hitting it with water every day well it's never going to expand out into that soil because it's getting everything it needs so Mm. it has the water all the time and so it has no reason to extend out and start to grow and so what you need to do is start to dry it out and it will freak it out and it says "Uh uh-oh i need to start moving or else i'm not going to have moisture here soon And so that's when it will start seeking out the soil that has more moisture and you'll start to actually like root into the pot. Mm. Then later on, a few months later, I'll go in and I'll separate them into individual four inches. Yep. Yep. That's, that's a really good way to just take cuttings on tropicals. I mean, most of the time you don't even really, really need uh, rooting homeowners on Mm -hmm. those. Um, No, it's, it's a big difference between, your regular hardwood trees like elms, maples, and stuff like that versus a, a tropical, you normally just stick it and it'll it'll go. Um yeah. and it's and it's a really high success rate on those too, from my understanding. It is. From the ones I've taken, I've gotten, I mean, uh if if I stick it and it's got green and it and it gets watered, like you said, and it stays warm, it's gonna take. Uh um, sure. Because they're they're such a strong plant. So there's no reason not to. And then another thing that I've seen you do as well, and I've I've done this as uh, this this is you know getting it from you, is that you'll do a kind of a waste knot method. So if you're cutting cutting off a branch off of a bigger tree, and it has and you wire everything out and it has all the the curly crazy branches, why cut off that piece when it's just big enough you could stick it as a cutting? Because right. in reality, you could cut. How what's like the biggest cutting that oh, you've I- taken? Oh, a huge, giant, you know, like, massive, like wrist size bigger than that. It's uh, but it's not necessarily beneficial, you know, to do that. I, I prefer working with smaller cuttings and growing them to that size. So, but what, what you were saying that is a great point is it preserves my work. So if I wired something and I decide I'm not going to use it and I can cut it off and root it again, well, then I didn't waste the time wiring it. You know, I still have that wired piece rooted that I can use and grow an individual tree out of, and I can use the base to kind of build a tapered tree. Mm-hmm. So, you know. And I think if you took too large of a cutting, and this this is just my, me kind of thinking conceptually about taking cuttings, is that your nabari would not grow as well as if you started from a small piece. That's exactly right. Yeah. So I mean, you, you can catch them up, but it's a lot of time and it'll always look a little artificial. Yeah. It's going to, you're going to see the point where it was obviously cut. And yeah. with the cutting, it's going to just naturally grow into its own roots like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's going to look really nice. And another thing that I've seen with CI Biscus that, that is pretty exciting, in my opinion, that I've seen you do is, um, is whenever you have a trunk that's too long in one section and you're like, you know what? Let's just do a ground layer or mm-hmm. an air layer. They air layer really easy. They do, and ground layer really easy. So a lot of times if I'm not happy with the roots on a shohan, I can ground layer the tree and uh, bring the roots up closer to like the branch divide. Um, I can do tons of things. I graft on them a lot. Um, so they're really, really just a great tree for 
all techniques, especially learning advanced bonsai, it's a very easy tree to kind of start to wrap your head around some of the more advanced concepts, uh, like balancing vigor, things mm -hmm. like that, because the buds are big, they're thick, you can really kind of uh, see them kind of moving very easily. It's not like a Premna or a Nia or a Boxwood where you have so many branches and so many buds that the idea of, of looking at the vigor of each one is no way not yep. going to happen. So it, it's, it's much easier to get your head around those concepts with something like a Japanese maple or a sea hibiscus, something like that. Yeah. Usually when I have beginners come into the nursery and they're asking me what's a good starter piece of material, I have to break it down into, into like a, um, like a web of what's what what are you trying to do like what species are you interested in and if we're doing deciduous trees i always recommend chinese elm or trident maple depending on your preference for maple or elm because you can kind of do the same thing you can do a lot of the same techniques you can do with the sea hibiscus with those mm -hmm. you can do grafting and air layers and and cuttings and all the cool stuff that they can do and they're pretty quick depending on your range yep. um and then yeah so the sea hibiscus is that ideal um, and we were talking about tropicals not too long ago in another previous episode, and you were saying the water jasmine and um, what was it? Was it your your fight, your Prima. tiger bark, and then your primna? Yeah. But the sea hibiscus, I feel like it has its own kind of thing. It's kind of like how um, how bougainvilleas are their own thing. It's kind of like right. how uh, Japanese black pines are their own thing, right. like how they're treated. And so they kind of fall into the subcategory of bonsai and there's even appreciation in a different way for them because of the way they are developed and how fast I, they, you know. I would honestly even say though, that like you could do the same level of study on any species and like, like if, let me word it to you like this, like in Japan, there are azalea nurseries that just grow azaleas. There are maple nurseries that just go grow maples, pine nurseries that just grow pines. You don't, life is too short to master one thing you know it really is to truly master more than one thing so if you think about like the nuances of learning just one species japanese black uh maple is another one there are people that just focus on japanese maple you can spend your whole life just studying that one species and working out the nuances of the various varieties various ways to grow them in different climates etc 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 and so I guess my point that I'm getting at is we could do this with anything. We could form a, a, a culture around anything. And like there's groups dedicated to sea hibiscus now. And there's people who that like me who are big, big fans of that specific type of tree. But that could be anything. You know, that could be there could be if somebody was passionate enough about boxwoods, you know, there could be the next thing could be boxwood nurseries. Who knows? But um so that's my point is just that the culture kind of uh, of curiosity and kind of wanting to hone in and master one thing kind of really brings out a lot of those more advanced techniques. Definitely, man. Uh, the It's just like there's like almost these schools dedicated, like you said, to these each of these bone size species. Um, and I don't know. I, I don't know how else to say it with uh, just saying that. You know, sea hibiscus is in its own, its leave of its own. I think it's an excellent tree. It's one of those challenge trees as well. That uh, yeah, you see the big leaf, and when you get it down to that that fingernail, that pinky nail size leaf, 
with the with proper techniques and then you get the ramification and the branches i mean that's one of that's one of those trees that the work you put into it it really reflects all the time and effort and it's a really gratifying uh development on those trees it really is it's extremely gratifying to see everything come together the culmination of uh of all your hard work but on that same double-edged sword is if you don't put in the work it will also show you those results so it will show you you know if you're kind of just like winging it or um you know you'll kind of get the results of like not being fully in yeah you know there are some species uh i'll say that the portulacaria is kind of one of those ones where you grow it out a little bit, you trim it, it gets dense and it kind of thickens on its own. And then right. you put it in a shallow pot and the roots get nice. The, the, uh, sea hibiscus, not so much. This is like what Mike, what's Mike saying here is it's not just one of those ones where it just kind of hand it to you, you know, you know, on a silver platter bone side development, you really, you have to go, you have to, you know, go through the trenches with the design work you do. and, and the concentration on, timing is really important and I, I really appreciate that about these trees about these high, ci business yeah Me so too. it's 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 uh it's not it's it elevates the game a little bit yep definitely so uh yeah let's uh let's break into our next topic something that that i think is important and to mention the uh the abs show the um the american bonsai society learning seminar in denver since I have a tree that I submitted and is going to that show, I figured we'd just do a little, you know, a little short segment about talking about prepping a tree. Um, and all, to kind of to kind of spin off the back of the of the the listener question and the request of the CI Biscus too, um, we also had that same person say they would love to hear us expand on topics that we've already talked about before and wanted bigger. Uh, discussions that we can do revisits. So I feel like display will be a revisit several times. And we could probably talk about display almost every episode, I feel like, because me and Carmen had an episode you guys can refer back to. It was, uh, it was, the episode was called Why You Should Have Show Ready Trees in Your Boneside Collection and how that will change your collection and evolve your, per- your perception. Um, and your development, because whenever you concentrate on a handful of trees and they're kind of like your your bench warmers, per se, of your bonsai collection. And when you're ready to submit a tree, um, then you submit one of those X, Y, Z trees and then one will get accepted to a show that you want to show it in. And now now comes the crunch time. How do you go from this tree looks good to stepping up to that that show how how do i mean and mike you have a lot of trees that look pretty pretty great you know majority of the year because you're always putting in that that work but there's an extra there's an extra step there's an extra couple of steps that you should take to get from that point uh you kind of agree with me there i'm i'm sure um, oh, yeah so if you're always per- per- perpetually developing and improving but i feel like whenever a tree is submitted to a show and it gets in the work changes the schedule changes suddenly so instead of being like oh well look look here i can cut this off and then i can make i can get rid of courses coarseness here and then go finer twigging here instead 
instead of doing that, and me and you actually uh, worked on the tree that is going. So you you know where I'm coming from with this next yeah. part is you said it best is if the tree, if this is what the tree is giving you now, work it into what's appropriate for that show and try not to make any like brash decisions that can cause issues within the within the time period of the show approaching. Yeah, no big changes. That. No, yeah. no big changes. So uh, this is going to sound daunting, but I'm going to tell the listeners like the honest way that I think is the best way to approach show prep is you should have a, a two year plan. Most shows are two years out. So the re and by two year plan, I don't mean like go get your notebook and start jotting down this long elaborate goal list. I mean like your two year plan is like this. Huh, I need I want to show a tree in, here soon. I need to start getting a few in that realm. And so for the first year, I'll start seeing what is coming to fruition. So what do I have that's coming to fruition? And as I start to round into that second year, that's when I start making the decision on what I'm going to show. And I pull from, like you said, the the pool of trees that are near show ready. And then for that next year, it's all about no major changes, um, making as clean a cuts as possible. So when I prune, being as deliberate as possible, making sure no half cutting of leaves, things like that, uh, making sure to properly balance the tree and time it right. Um, and then hopefully by the time you hit that two year mark and the show is upon you, everything is kind of lined up. Your tree looks really, really good. You don't have to go in there and like clean a bunch of old dead branches or stuff that you weren't keeping up with. And you don't have to go clean out a bunch of old half cut leaves. And so it's a lot of just making sure that you're keeping the tree as pristine as possible is my opinion. Now it's going to change obviously with like pines and stuff like that, your scheduling, but largely my opinion is showtime. You, the tree is what it is. You know, you don't go and cut off a controversial branch right before showtime. Um, you kind of deal with it. And if the tree isn't ready, if the tree, if you're like, oh, well, you know, I'm still growing that branch. Well, not for show year, you're not, or that tree shouldn't have been selected for show. Yeah. So if you were still growing that branch, you know, and, and this is all within reason, like we'll always see, I'm not going to criticize somebody who does that because if I had a tree and it, I didn't want to cut the branch and for some reason I had to show the tree, I'm still not cutting that branch. Yeah. So, but it goes with saying that we should pick trees that we don't have to kind of make those decisions on a tree that's still in development. I shouldn't try to show a tree that's more in refinement is one that's going to be a lot easier to get rounded in and kind of shaped up in that, that year or so you have. Yeah, I agree. Um, and you'd mentioned earlier the two-year plan and, and there's something to be said about major shows. So when I say major shows, let me just reference a few, like the, the ones that I'm aware of that, that are, that you can get a tree ready for. So you have the nationals. That's the one put on by, uh, Will Belvanis over in Rochester. And then you have the ABS show, which is actually a traveling show. That one is not always in Denver. It was actually last time it was in Texas somewhere, uh, two years before that, but that one is, that one is every two years as well. And then uh, Jonas Dupuy just and uh, and Eric Slater is that his name um, started the uh, Pacific Bonsai Expo over on the West Coast, and that is also on the same caliber of type show, and that one also has a two year window 
And it's for that, it's, it's exactly for that rule of thumb is that you have that two year window to make that choice on the tree and then move it into the, into that show prep mode, because, and this is how I, this is how I kind of look at it is if, if I have a tree in a training pot and I'm, and I'm like, this tree is next to my roster. It's time to find that tree's show pot for now. And, mm-hmm. uh, and if you look at pictures of old, old bonsai and show, you'll see trees that have been shown multiple times over the years and their containers will change every once in a while. And this is a really good thing to pay attention to is to see where the tree is at that time. If you can trace back older photos of, of it, of the same tree, which is not difficult. Uh, sometimes you just have to look at multiple expos to kind of see this. Uh, what I, I actually got lucky and found old pictures of like Goshen, John Naka's Goshen and saw the evolution of that tree and the transition transitional periods of its development. And I got to find some early pictures of it, like back in the sixties, seventies, eighties. I need to start collecting those photos and get, get that like a thing of that together. But the, the shape of the trees and the type of container changed over time um, on the, on that. And so I'm not saying we're going to show Goshen or anything, but anyway, uh, but that goes for any bone size. So we're in a training pot typically when it's early on. And let's say this tree is baby fresh. It's It's been in development for five to 10 years, depending on species, and it's ready for that first pot. And you have to be really precise on what pot you're going to go with because you should have done the, all the root work beforehand to get it into said bone side container. So I'll seek out my bone side container and make sure I can get in that bones and get that bone side container. If I can't get in that container because of a root issue, maybe I didn't notice that a major root was going in a direction where the edges of the, of my ideal bone side show pot would be, then that, that could set me back. I could just go, I would go to that tree and say, no, you don't, it's not your chance. I'm going to have to cut this root, put you in a different pot that's deeper and you're not show ready. So that's kind of one of the considerations to make there. And then after that, that's whenever I typically submit, well, that's when it, in theory, that's the best time to submit that tree or have it ready to be submitted so that you know that you can move in that direction Mm -hmm. because that tree is going to recover and that recovery period could be rough or it could be great, you know? And so when it's recovering, then you, you find out things that might've happened. You might have to regrow something. But like Mike said, no major growth, no bigger, big changes or anything. Like if you lost up some dieback on a tree, on a branch somewhere, then if, if it's not too bad that you don't have to cut the whole thing off, that could be another huge uh, decision change there too. But it also, you were right in saying the root work should have already been done. So yeah, it shouldn't happen. You shouldn't take a tree. Like we did some at Don's house that where they were basically already in bonsai pots or training pots. And then we went into finished containers. Now, a lot of those, we didn't even do full repots on a lot of those were, you know, with the, the, the intention of, Hey, Don, you know, we are not doing the proper horticultural repot. We are just getting these slip potting these into show pots so that they look as good as possible for the show. And so that kind of prep work, shouldn't have any effect on the tree. You know, me taking off 10% of the roots on the bottom 
shouldn't have any real effect on the tree. Yep. Uh, and so you shouldn't be in a position where your tree that you're showing is going to require you to remove 50% of the roots, you know, yep. right before the show, you shouldn't be in that position. Um, and if you are like, like you said, you should, that work should have been done at least a year before, but even that's, I mean, two years is realistically, if it's not even in a bonsai pot yet, that tree is, it's a ways out. It's a ways out from showing. Yeah. yeah. And so, so it's, yeah. So once we have our show in mind, um, and then we got our pot picked out, like, like Mike had said, um, and we have a good friend of our, that good friend of ours that shows trees a lot. Dawn, we were, we were like, we were talking about, um, so those trees can be transitioned over really easy because they had been prepped they've been trained and they go. And, I, and I've had people ask me in the past, do bonsai trees have like a different pair of like fancier pants? Like they change their pants for the show. Like this is your, your grow pot. Then you get your fancy pants uh, show pot just for that time being. And then they go back into the, into the grow out container. That kind of stuff does actually happen in Japan. It does. Yeah. Over in Japan, yeah. they'll get up a, a really nice show container. The apprentices will slip pot, prep it, get it perfect, show it for three days, boom, back into the grow pot, you know, once it gets back to the nursery. So uh, the problem with that, though, is uh, is if you do that is let's say I buy a new porcelain pot and it's like a really expensive, nice pot. If I never use it, I won't ever get the patina on it and it will never yep. match the maturity of the tree. So you still have to like, you got to risk it for the biscuit. So hmm. you do kind of have to at times grow them in their pots. And at times, you know, if they need it, it's, I take them out. I go through phases where I'll take trees out and I'll give them a year off in a training pot. You know, uh, if they start growing too weak or they've been refined for too long, I'll give them a year off. And then I'll usually slam them right back in their old pot or take that opportunity to find something I think might work better. Yeah. Exactly. That's a good point. Uh, you'll never get that patina. And we know that we love seeing old patina to match the age of the tree. And so step that's the first step there. And you have to also have to have your this show that you're going to show your tree in in mind. What what is the caliber of the show? What species are you working with? And what's going to be the expectation of of your tree? What does it what is it going to look like with the other trees, too? That's something that I think a lot of uh early bonsai practitioners don't really that they're not aware of is that sometimes when you show your tree you have to think about the other trees that are in the show as well you have to kind of get a reference what normally is shown at the show so how should i go about selecting style and orientation of the tree in the pot and so then once you kind of get that in mind you have your pot and then you have to depending on the requirement requirements of the show that's i don't know if this is 100 percent all the time you need to find something to accent your tree with. So we can say like a kusamono, a figure of some kind, a clay figure, a bronze figure, um, or even something a little bit more of an abstraction. Or I'd see uh, like uh, Mike talked to Sammy not too long ago, and he uses origami to accent next to his trees. So you have to come up with a theme. And that a can be... Theme. There you that, go. Yeah, that can be challenging because... It that's when that's when the show that's when the artist like the art side really needs to start to kind of kind of come together in your mind is what am I trying to represent here? Am I trying to show what time? And here's another thing too that I need to say before we get too far into that is 
what time of year is this show? That really sets the stage for what's the appropriate accent. So, it does. Um, and, and go ahead. And it should all be a, like you said, a theme. You know, I think that's very important to point out is that, that it should be telling a story. So your grass, it shouldn't just be, I have pretty tree, I have pretty figurine, I have pretty scroll. Mm-hmm. They all go together. No, they should all go together with the context. Yep. You know. And yeah. so one of the cool things that you'll see with like, I'll just give you a quick example of a dis of a three-point display um for the listeners out there. Um is let's say cascading five needle pine in in a um unglazed, you know, fairly tall pot that's on a stand that's nice and narrow to match the the height and the cascade of the tree, how far it's coming down. And it's pointing at the at the ground. It's pointing at our accent, which is on a um like a burrow wood that's cut really thin, really elegantly, and it's highly polished. And it will be like a a grass and say that the season is fall. So the grass is a rush. And there are very, very minor things that tell you that it's fall because you'll find a grass that will have seed bodies or expelled flowers, flowers that are past their time that are turning into seeds. And then you have a scroll behind that. And that scroll, usually in autumn or the fall time, will will, uh, show a, a sunset of some kind. I've seen that or a scarecrow. I've, I've always thought that was really cool. Uh, you know, something related to just like primitive ap- agriculture, like that's really cool. Uh, deer in the woods uh, surrounded by, you know, the theme of oranges and reds uh, usually. And so that's kind of a a uh, a, pa- a picture I'm trying to paint in y'all's mind of that's how that display would typically go in a proper show. And so from there, you could play around with it. Let's say it's springtime. So when you think of springtime, Mike, kind of describe a three-point display when you think of spring. Oh, man. Like an, well, this is a little brain experiment. Like if I was doing the traditional Japanese thing, I would do like an ume, like a uh, a cherry, something that is just beginning to flower um, or a tree pushing new buds. And I would show that. Um, I would maybe show that with... Uh, an accent in flower or with a figurine that would represent something that would be in the forest or on the mountain in that time of year, you know, perhaps a Fox wink, wink, everybody. (laughs) Um, And then the scroll for summertime or for spring is typically um, like you said, going to be suns, things like that. Uh, It is important to note that, you don't want to use black and gold scrolls during spring or summer. That's typically used in winter. Um, but I have also seen people use moon scrolls uh, for spring, so you could always use that. But I tend to like like waterfalls. You know, my big thing is, especially if I'm trying to show the the mountains. You know, waterfall instantly gives you elevation, um, and really kind of ties together that whole theme of hey, we're up in the mountains, we're having a good time. Yep. Uh, and here's another thing that I think is very important um, for displays for your ac- accent plant. If you're going to show a tree and you keep in mind the species, keep in mind what else is going to be on display. 
in that environment um, as far as what species should your accent be? Should it be something that literally grows alongside your tree or should it, or should it represent something that is abstractly related to your tree? You wouldn't necessarily find them next to each other, but they, they reflect each other. And so you kind of have to think about that as far as theme too. And like then, the, yeah, good. Oh, I like the abstract ones. That, yeah. That's my, my favorite. I think my favorite display I've ever seen was a small suicide on a long post, really long monkey pole. And uh, at the bottom of that suicide was a pool stone, which a pool stone is like a stone that just has a small divot in it where water has struck it for, you know, thousands of years. And so your mind took me years to realize what I was looking at. You know, what, what would that be? That stone elevated so high be. Mm. what would that be that's like a stone <laughs> what is a stone that's really really high that goes really really high up in the air oh a mountain uh, yeah okay where are you <laughs> yeah so it, a, a mountain and then it, the pool stone represents water hitting it for thousands of years and it's right below the mountain so what is the whole story telling us yeah it's telling you about erosion and, and passages of time and a waterfall that's giving us that yep. that hidden waterfall. So you don't need to see the water. And that's the kind of abstract Japanese design that I think displays the subtleties that go into Japanese display. Is mm. I, I I personally uh, have a, I'm not a big fan of like literal display. I don't want to see water in the actual display. I don't want to see like a, a functioning pump system or anything like that. I want to see you know, something not so literal, a suggestion, a suggestion. Yeah. Like, um, we're going to, we're going to actually, uh, get close to wrapping up here just to, just for the sake of time, um, for, for a tree that I did just recently, Mike, I'm sure you saw this one. I put a bald cypress on a, on a uh, actual stone slab by itself. Yeah. And I wanted to do that. Not because I wanted to say, Oh look, here's a here's a, a slab planting of a bald cypress by itself. It's not a forest. It's just you know, I wanted you like you said. You wanted the abstraction. You wanted the suggestion. The blue stone, the light colored stone, almost shows me a water, like a uh, like a placid uh, stream near placid stream, like smooth stream that you would see here in Louisiana. And so I want people's minds to paint the picture of of the little out, outcropping little island looking type thing in the swamp that has the really still water on the exterior. And so, yeah, I really appreciate the thought of using stones or other materials to represent other scenes and other, other themes within a display like that. Sure. Uh, but yeah, like I said, we're, uh, we're coming close to time. We'll, we'll, we can pick this, this conversation up, uh, in a later episode, but, uh, but yeah, I think that covers a good bit of stuff about sea hibiscus and display for yeah. now. Do you agree, Mike? Yeah, I mean, we could literally talk forever about both. Yeah. Um, but for those that are interested, I do document all. Uh, you can go back on my Facebook, you know, find some of the sea hibiscus posts. And most of them will be documented from like, you know, how they started growing. Sometimes I'll even include like the growing techniques that I use. So you can go back, check out some of those posts. Um, mm -hmm. 
And then as far as display, um, really, really a lot more that we need to talk about. So maybe it is a good idea that we do a revisit at some point uh, because we didn't even talk about, you know, Moss, things like that. Yep. So we, we have a lot of stuff to talk about with them. But And that's what I was saying a little bit earlier in the episode. I was like, look, we'll uh, we'll do segments where we'll revisit uh big topics like this so uh yeah for sure on the next one we'll we'll have our main topic and then we'll come back to display again so guys consider that to be the part one of talking about how to display you've been Um, warned yeah and if you've listened this far into the show and you listen to the end thank you so much uh we really appreciate you guys like i said uh, you can go over to patreon.com forward slash little things for bonsai people, and you can become a patron and, and, and support us and help us grow. Uh, you can go check out underhillbonsai.com, go check out articles and our in my nursery that I run over here in Folsom, Louisiana. Uh, you can go check out kitsunebonsai.com, go check out Mike's work, uh, look, up, look into his services and his offerings. Uh, we got lots of stuff going on, guys, and like I said, uh, thank you guys so much for for hanging out with us on this one, and we will pick it up in the next one. So yeah, thanks for hanging out, Mike. Yeah, man, take it easy, guys. See you next week. All right, peace. <laughs>